Our scripture reading today is found in Romans 6, verses 4 and 5, and also 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The sermon title today was given me by Eric Thornburg. And I've invited him to come give the opening to the sermon as well because it's based, uh, his opening explains the title and, and then we'll connect it to our spiritual thought. Eric, you have uh, a wonderful piece to give us this morning. I'm sure you all took a thoughtful moment this morning amongst your mountain chores to honor the beginning of our freedom at the Greens of Lexington and Concord, the beginning of the American Revolution. I can say it no better than the poet laureate Ralph Waldo Emerson put it, by that rude bridge which arched the flood with flags to April's breeze unfurled, here once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. To be a historian, what a gift. Is today some kind of anniversary of, of that? It is the 233rd anniversary of that uh, event. My mind doesn't work like that, so I think it's better to just hand that piece off to those for whose minds uh, God is equipped to do those things. The shot heard round the world, or the, sorry, the what? The shout, I got it. The shout heard round the world. We always think of it in terms of Emerson's words. That's where we really get the phrase. As Americans, we think in terms of that battle cry for freedom. As Americans, we think of the beginning of something that would emerge as a nation. We think of that which removed us from the tyranny of taxes that were imposed. Boy, we've come a long way. I'm not sure where we are on that. Removed us from the tyranny of religious oppression that is to say the lack of freedom to worship as we wanted and as we heard uh, some weeks ago with Alan Reinek we're constantly in danger of losing that too but the real shout heard round the world is the shout that continues to echo it's the shout that you have heard in your head it is the shout that gives you peace and assurance it is the shout that makes you a Christian and not something else. It is the shout that 
signifies a faith, not just in oneself or one's gifts or one's capacities, but a faith in a God-made flesh who dwelt among us. The shout heard round the world, say it with me, it's found in John. It is finished. Only John records those words. Matthew, Mark, Luke. All those Gospels tell us Jesus shouted aloud and gave up His Spirit. Or His breath returned to His Father. It's it's phrased different ways. It's, It's phrased different ways in the Gospels. Only John records it for us. It is finished. Jesus cries out. And He bows His head and gives up His Spirit. It's an amazing moment. We teach that in that moment, Jesus wasn't certain. He had run his course. He had run his race. He had done his part. But we're told he couldn't see through to the other side. Whether that's true or not doesn't really matter. As he declares it done, whether he's talking about his own race or whether he's talking about the larger battle, the battle of of good and evil, the battle of the great controversy, the battle of Christ against Satan, of, of righteousness against sin. He declares in that moment something to be finished. And that something in that cry is what we have taken to. Because Jesus will say it is finished on Friday and he will sleep on Saturday and he will be resurrected on Sunday. And in in that sense, when resurrection comes, it's not finished, is it? In terms of his life. He'll go on for eternity. So when he says it is finished, he's talking about the battle. And it is that battle that we commemorate in communion. I, for years, was confused. I tried to sort of get into this emotional place where I had a more sincere or deeper appreciation for Christ's suffering and pain. I think that's really important. For years, I entered the communion with the idea that it was a time for me to try to remember everything that was wrong in my life so that I could give it to God again and that He would somehow find a way to clear the books again and bring me up to speed here and salvation could sort of return to me, if you will, after a a period of, of, of sinning. I'm a rampant sinner. Anybody out there a rampant sinner? Oh, just a few. Well, we'll get together at Potluck and have a support group. The rest of you get to sit at the All Saints table and don't you dare speak to us about much of anything again. We're not worthy. But there's this sort of of thing that, that used to happen for me in my Christian walk, in my life, in my experience surrounding communion. And it's because... Up until now, I don't know that I've really consciously been able to embrace uh, the shout heard round the world. 
it is finished. The battle is won. It's over. And because Jesus has won this incredible battle, his righteousness gets to be my righteousness by his declaration. His love and grace become the love and grace which I learn to operate my life out of, hopefully, as I interact with others. His peace becomes my peace and assurance in a world full of turmoil. His healing becomes my healing. His suffering reminds me that I shouldn't consider myself too special to suffer either. His death is not the end of the story. The resurrection, as I've said, is the end point. So let's take a look at a couple of texts, texts that you've heard this morning, and let's just pull this together. We're looking in Romans, and the passage is 6, 4, and 5. And Paul is talking about this a little bit, this idea of being dead to sin, alive in Christ, the battle being over, the it is finished. He says, we were bapt, excuse me, we were buried with him, Jesus, through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And that is indeed the essence of this gospel. Paul goes on to say in verse 5, if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And he elaborates. Do you catch the thinking? It's not typical thinking for us. We don't tend... Our minds don't tend to work in this way. Paul makes an elaborate sort of argument. And if I can simplify it, I will. If I make it more confusing, just go back to the scriptures. We have a deal? All right. If it's more confusing, go back to Romans 6. If I can shed some light on it, hopefully that'll be helpful. He argues that when we were baptized... Baptism was a signifier. It was a symbolic sort of death, a burial, if you will. It can be a cleansing. It can be a rebirth. It can be a lot of things. But Paul describes it in this particular context as symbolic of our dying. 
And our baptism is a baptism into Christ. And so we are dying with Christ. We participate through baptism in his death. Then he argues Christ, though, was raised from the dead for the glory of the Father. And he says if Christ is raised, then we too, as we were buried, are also raised to live a new life in Christ. Now, if we've been united with him in death, the argument is secondarily repeated. Verse 5, we will certainly also be united with him in resurrection. You participate in Christ's death. Christ was raised from the dead. You participate in his resurrection. So you have his resurrection life as well. Verse 6, the old self was crucified with him. We go back to a different way now of saying the same thing. Our old selves are crucified with Christ, and our old selves are what? Sinful, correct? Yeah. So the old body of sin is crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And now this is the argument that isn't like the way we think. Paul says that when Christ died and was resurrected, sin could no longer have a hold. Therefore, if we've died with Christ and we are resurrected with him, we too are victorious and sin no longer can have a hold. Now, you know, if you go to chapter 7 of Romans, we do find that famous passage where Paul is struggling with sin is why I'm not ashamed to admit I've struggled with sin and continue to struggle with sin. Why you shouldn't be ashamed to admit that we each have these things we struggle with. We have character defects. We have temptations. We live in a world in which we're bombarded thousands of times a day with messages that aren't particularly helpful to our Christian adventure. But despite these things, in Christ, we are also immune. Despite these things, because Christ lives, we live also. Because Christ is free, we are free also. This is Paul's elaboration. This is Paul's argument. We are no longer slaves to sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And that is another recapitulation of the same argument. Only this time, instead of sin being the immune piece, that is to say, when Christ dies, he's immune from sin as he's resurrected. The argument is extended. When Christ dies, he is immune from death again. Now that's a very important piece because it's one thing to solve the problem of sin. It is another thing to solve the problem of mortality. Do you follow me? It is another thing altogether. Now they're related in our thinking and our theology. Certainly sin brings death. But even dealing with the sin issue doesn't necessarily at this juncture deal with the mortality issue. And Paul combines them. Now why is this important? Why am I talking to you about this on this particular day? 
It's because when Jesus says it is finished and he enters that death from which he finds himself resurrected on the third day, from which he resurrects on the third day, depends on the gospel you read. That's very significant because of what it means for us. We participate in his crucifixion. We participate in his rest. We participate in his resurrection. And we share in his new immunities. Now, the consummation of our shareholding in those immunities is yet to come, isn't it? The earth has not yet been made new. We still inhabit bodies of death. But it's the first death. It's the death that is asleep if we are in Christ. It is the death from which he calls us to resurrection life one day. It is the death out of which there remains hope. This is the significance of what we do today. So as we gather at this table prepared for us in just a little while, my prayer, my hope, is that we will think of this communion feast not as some sort of bizarre act of eating the body and blood, not as some sort of uh, ritualistic participation, but somehow more deeply that this is the feast that Jesus invites us to in the earth made new. The renewal of Passover, which is simply this, God has delivered. And when he delivers, when he frees, we must embrace that freedom. And now, oddly enough, we celebrate our status as freed men and women by behaving as servants. John 13 tells us this is what Jesus did. And not only did he do it, but he commanded that we also do it. And so I dismiss you at this time for the ritual of foot washing. There is a room prepared for men. There is a room prepared for women. There is a room prepared for couples and families. I'd like to invite you to separate for that at this time and gather back here as we meet at the table. God bless you.